I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is someone that fascinates me. He not only has achieved so much in life, but I have to say, preparing for this interview, I found a very genuine, very generous, wise person sharing something that he's really passionate about in a way that intrigued me. You know, I'm, I tend to sometimes be told that I do well in business and that I speak well in public and, you know, I can relate to people. And, and I never really understood some of the things that I do in the background that make me, as he says, backable. And his new book, Backable, is actually describing really interestingly what makes some people want to back other people up. Sunil Gupta is the founder of Rise. Uh, Rise is a startup in the uh, healthcare space that has been sold to One Medical. A very, very interesting idea. He is a a faculty member at uh, Harvard University. He uh, worked in multiple technology companies such as Groupon and Mozilla, and he has been a graduate of uh, law school, worked as a product manager and a technologist, and now is a published author. In Backable, Sunil talks about seven steps that teach us the it factor, if you want, of what makes you convince others to back you, to support you. Sunil went from being the face of failure for the New York Times uh, when an article about failure had him as the example to the new face of innovation. His ideas have been backed by firms all the way from small individual investors, some of the venture capitalists, to Google Ventures. And he has invested in startups like Airbnb and Calm and SpaceX, companies that we didn't know about when he decided to invest in them. So accordingly, this is going to be an unusual conversation for slow-mo because it sort of talks about how you can be an entrepreneur and successful. But at the same time, as I assure you from listening and reading Sunil's work, is something that I think you will find useful in your everyday life. The tips that you need to be backable. I think you will really enjoy this conversation if Sunil is the Sunil that I have prepared to meet today. Hello, Sunil. Hi. Hello, Mo. So good to see you. It's so good to that you took the time. Thank you. No, hey, thank you. I, I'm a big fan of, of Solve for Happy. And I was thinking to myself this morning that you're so ahead of your time, I think, sort of coming up with these ideas. You obviously had no idea oh that, COVID, thank you. that COVID would be coming around the corner. But I, I can only imagine that people need that right now more than, more than ever. It's actually quite funny because I was talking about this today. Uh, we're preparing for a sort of a talk show tomorrow and and the idea of how desperate I was when COVID started because I thought my mission would completely come to a halt. 
and how suddenly it's, you know, the lockdowns were really the times where my work, you know, this podcast and my books and my talks were needed most. So it's been, uh, yeah, it's been quite timely. That's amazing, man. And are you working on another book now? I finished two. So I have two with publishers already. Wow. And, uh, and I'm working on, I always work on four or five at the same time, but I'm very committed on, actually, it's interesting. So I'm working on uh, one book myself. So this is really exciting for me. But then I'm also working on a book on stress with a friend. And I'm working on children's books for the first time, working on five of them, actually. Wow which is a very interesting, I don't, you know, it's not my area of expertise, if you want, but my partner on, on the children's books is a children's book publisher who has done quite a bit in her life. So together we're trying to do something interesting. We'll see if that works. So exciting times. Yeah. I would love to just chat with you more about your process and how you manage across five books. I'm working on my next one right now, and it's all, uh-huh. about, it's all about Dharma concept of dharma wow i love that but that's very different than backable isn't it different i mean i you know i think i ask my daughters two questions every morning what's the meaning of life and what's the purpose of life what's the meaning of life they say to find your gift Mm. and what's the purpose of life is to give it away oh i love that backable i think is is all about how you give your gift away Dharma is more about the first question. How do you find your gift? How do you find your calling? Uh, In an interesting way, I have to admit, Backable was quite an eye-opener for me. I mean, it's it's out now. It's officially out end of January, right? Yeah, last week we opened, yeah. One of the things that, of course, sometimes I get very jealous about in a, in a, very, in a very loving way is, how did you get backable.com? Like, seriously, how? how? How did we forget that word? And now you have a book and a website in that name. Like, what a brand. <laughs> I heard you talking on a podcast recently with, with someone else who had flow consciousness. And you were ah. talking about that brand. And I was like... You're right. That's an amazing brand. And there, there are a lot of brands out there that I think are just left on the table. I looked that up and, and no one had taken it and it wasn't all that expensive. And I, I just said, wow, all right, let me, let me go ahead. And yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful concept. And I want to I I talk about it extensively, but let us first introduce you to everyone. You're just not like a person that we come across every day. So you've, you've worked in corporate America. You worked in Mozilla, which is a company I respect a lot, and you worked in Groupon. Uh, you've gone into politics. You uh, were on the covers as the face of a story the New York Times published on failure. Oh, well done you. That's a <laughs> <laughs> major success. And, and you actually run for office in your own state in Michigan. Yeah. And you started a startup that you, that you actually sold to one of the big players in the medical space. And then you are now a published author. Hey, what's up? Like that's, how do you find your next adventure? <laughs> you know, where do you come up with those things? Yeah, you know, I consider myself to be much more, I think that there are kind of two archetypes I've come across in my career. There are people who are architects and then there are people who are archaeologists. Architects uh, have a blueprint and upfront and they sort of, you know, know exactly where they're going to go in their career. And then, then they go build that building. And that's admirable. I admire people like that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. 
for me, I've always sort of been more of an archaeologist where mm. it, it, it's about what is really fueling me in this moment, this very nonlinear path, which I think certainly has its pros and cons. You know, if I'm, if I'm being honest with someone in, in high school or college, I, I just gave a talk the other day at the University of Pennsylvania and students were asking me about this. And I'm like, look, I mean, it's not without its, its cons, but I have found it to be a very exciting journey. And one of the things I talk about in the book, which I, I believe now, is, is that the opposite of success is not failure, it is boredom. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's like giving up. It's like, okay, that's it. I'm not trying again. Yeah, exactly. So what is it that really fuels you? What is it that's actually grabbing you right now? And what's grabbing you right now may not necessarily be the thing that was grabbing you 10 years ago. And that's okay. And, and I feel like people who feel that attachment where it's like, no, I've got to go down the straight path. That was the blueprint. I've got to keep building up. That's where I find people, you know, start to feel a little bit miserable with their work. And, uh, and I know you talked a lot about this, Mo. I, 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 love, I love listening to you speak and I love, I love reading your stuff. But the story that always comes to mind for me is a story that Buddha tells to his disciples, which is that a, a man comes to this very, very choppy river and he's trying to get across and he's trying to figure out what should I do. And, and finally, he decides that he's going to build this very robust raft, this boat, so that he can cross the river because if he swam, he would drown. And so he builds this boat and it takes him months to build it. And finally, it's strong enough where it can actually cross these currents. And it does. And he gets to the other side safely. Now, the rest of his journey is by foot. So the question is, does he then take this boat <laughs> and lift it over his head and carry it the rest of the way? Or does he leave the boat at the bank? And all of Buddha's disciples say, well, of course he doesn't carry it the rest of the way. That'd be crazy. And Buddha says, yeah, but that's Hana how we tend to live our lives. We feel like our past, these past things that we have built, determine our future. When in reality, they don't, we can always set down the raft. I mean, beautiful wisdom, but it's so hard when you have those attachments, especially if it's a great boat, especially if it's a great career, especially if you had to convince yourself to be excited about it. And then you just realize, I mean, you have two daughters, so what about them? How, how do you make those courageous decisions and, and change without fear, without fear of missing out, without fear of loss? Yeah, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that you know, everything that I'm saying right now comes from a place of privilege in that the essentials, I think, are taken care of. If they weren't, if I felt like I couldn't put food on the table, I, if I felt like I couldn't give my daughters the, the education and the healthcare and all the essentials, then I think that, look, you do what you need. I mean, I knocked on thousands of doors while I was running for Congress and I met people from all walks of life. And if you look at my, my district where I ran, you know, the income disparity is huge. I mean, you have some of the wealthiest people in the country living in my district. You have some of the poorest people in the country living in my district. It is a place of privilege when you get to choose what it is that you are sort of doing with your life, knowing that the essentials are taken care of. There's no doubt about that. The question becomes when you do have those essentials and you still choose to take a path that isn't making you happy, genuinely making you unhappy. I went to law school and 
I, you know, when I graduated from law school, I practiced law for a little bit. That was my first job at Mozilla was helping out on the legal side of things. And, you know, I go back to my law school reunion and I hang out with some of my friends and some of them are happy. They, they like being a lawyer, but others, you know, look, they made that decision when they were pretty young. They made it when they were in college. They started applying for law school when they were juniors, seniors in college. And now they're in their, you know, thirties, if not early forties. And they're, and they're thinking to themselves, like, this isn't something that I want to do anymore. And what it comes back to for me is they're doing it often because not because they want to be a lawyer, but because they have a law degree. And that law degree, I think, is that raft that we're talking about that we carry over our heads, not being willing enough to just say, let me set that down and see where else I can go, knowing that I'm probably going to be okay. And so are the people that I love. That is so wise. I mean, if you really think about, I was just in in a conversation with a friend this morning. We were thinking about COVID-19 and the lockdown and the almost forced change of lifestyle as um, it was received differently by different people. Some people actually took this and said, whoa, hold on. I mean, there is another way I could live. And and maybe if there is another way I could live, I could reflect on so many things in my life that I never paused to ask myself if I want to make those as part of my life or not. And I think what you're saying is that you probably do that instinctively every few years in your life. I think so. I mean, I, I you know, I, I try to take time to reflect. I don't, I don't do it nearly enough, I think, but I feel like I try to make it a practice more than I try to make it a breaking point. It used to be that I would have to hit a point of, of real anxiety in my life. It was like all the signs pointed to change is needed. It was getting unhealthy. And I would use that as my trigger to make any type of change. For me, I, I feel like I've tried to make sort of that reflection more of a practice now where it's part of frequent journaling. I have tried my best to keep up a meditation habit. And there's, you know, there's introspection that comes with that. I will say too, Mo, like just writing as well. You know, like for me as a writer, my book came out last week. I have no idea how it's going to do. Is it going to be a bestseller? Is it going to be all the things that my publisher wants? I don't know. But what I can tell you for sure is that it is not only has it, the process made me a better writer, but just sitting down and writing, even if it's for 15 to 20 minutes a day, you just learn so much about yourself. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. One of my biggest secrets to writing is I actually write for me. And I know it sounds really, really selfish. But the reason I write several things in parallel is because they are explorations for me. It's my very, very own being coming out to the surface for me to see it. So, and now, you know, the idea of working with collaborators as well, it's just so eye-opening. It's so inspiring when you just go into that concept of stress. And, you know, actually I'm not a stressed person at all, but, you know, suddenly that topic comes to my mind and it's such a silent killer. And I start to think about it and, you know, analyze it. And it's so wonderful. It's so enriching to reflect. And I hear you say you journal as well. And I think that's really, really key. Yeah. Has that always been the case for you, Mo? Like you say, you're, no, you're no. not a stressed person. I'm not, I'm not stressed at all. Nothing stresses but, but me. But back in the day, I remember back in the day, well, you know, reading, you were talking about how at one point in time you had these, you know, multiple car garages and you were sort of looking at yourself in the mirror and not really appreciating the reflection 
Was that a point, would you consider that a point of stress for you? I used to be a control freak and control, you know, the, the need to control would stress me. But for years now, I mean, this is more than maybe 15, 20 years ago, you know, I realized that life flows. There is really very little that you can do that you will not do, if you know what I mean. And if you do your best, then why worry? It's like, um, you know, so life is bound to throw some challenges my way. We know that, right? So no point stressing if it will or it will not, because it's certainty almost that it will. And at the same time, when life throws a challenge on me, I will do my best. I can't do better than my best. And so after doing my best, I might solve it or I might get crushed for a while. Either way, it's not within my control. So once again, what am I stressing about? Basically, my approach is keep vigilant, look at the life around you and do your best, right? And then, yeah, the best outcome will come. Sometimes the best way to live uh, or the secret is sometimes the, the, the thing that's hidden in plain sight. Totally. And I'm really interested in what you're saying because my next book, as I mentioned, is on this topic of Dharma. And part of what I'm trying to do is to bring the concepts from the Bhagavad Gita, which is basically the Hindu Bible, into the business world. And one of, one of the principles, the key principles in the Bhagavad Gita is this idea of detachment. Oh, yes. Which is incredibly, incredibly hard, especially in the West, to adopt. But part of what I'm trying to demystify is that, you know, we often think about detachment as this Eastern spirituality concept. But if you look at high performers in the West and you start to unpack their process, what I realized, even as I was writing Backable, is that detachment was a big part of it. Take for, example, take, for example, Barack Obama, who I spent a lot of time talking about in the book because he was sort of the first backable person that I ever really got an inside peek into. And with Barack Obama, if you've read his new book, Promised Land, it is really interesting to hear him talk about the fact that his staff was worried about his sense of ambivalence. <laughs> At yeah. one point in time in the book, David Axelrod, who is his senior advisor, comes to him and says, look, here's the problem. You would be happy whether or not you win this election. And Barack Obama looks at him and he says, you're right. <laughs> I would be happy whether or not yeah. I win this election, right? And again, like we, I think in the, particularly in the West, we see that as a sense of, um, of weakness. Oh, it's the ultimate strength. It's the ultimate, ultimate strength because now you're not worried as much about the outcome. And that means you could be fully, fully dedicated to the process, right? 100% there. Like LeBron James was asked the other day, like, what is the LeBron mindset? What does that mean? And LeBron says, well, the LeBron mindset is that never, ever when I'm on the court, am I thinking about the trophy? Never. That's the LeBron mindset. I'm thinking about the court. I'm thinking about the best I can do on the court. It's funny you bring this up because, so I just told you I was very stressed when I was a control freak. And I remember vividly the moment when I actually was introduced to detachment by a Hindu friend of mine, a wonderful, wonderful young lady, Charu, which um, sadly we, we got out of touch. But at the time she taught me about detachment. And I remember vividly sitting there saying, what's this crap? <laughs> 
I can't do that. I mean, what are you talking about, Sharon? She was a very successful businesswoman. She was the creative director of one of the of the biggest uh, advertising companies. And basically, she said, look, I'm not telling you to not be ambitious. I'm not telling you not to try hard. I'm just telling you differentiate between results and effort. You put the best effort you can, but you know results are not always within your hands. And if you're attached to the result, you're bound to be disappointed very often. Yeah, sounds so much like what you've written about just maybe with a different, a different name. It sounds so much about what you, you've talked about and taught us with control. I think the idea for most people, especially at this time, by the way, is that, you know, we sometimes consider things not going the way we want them to as failure. And I have to say, I laughed out loud when I heard your failure con story or, or fail con, fail con. Fail con, yeah. Who goes to FailCon? I, mean, I didn't know there was a FailCon to start. This is, this is a <laughs> conference neither. for failure. It, it is a conference specifically for failure. And let me tell you, it is, a, it is a humbling experience when someone calls you and says, hey, you know, we're hosting a conference on failure and we would love for you <laughs> to be the keynote speaker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> what have you seen in me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're on stage, and then the New York Times decides to take you as the example for failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. So the New York Times ends up writing the story on failure. Yeah, I didn't know this at the time, but as I'm giving this keynote speech, there is a reporter from the New York Times in the audience. They put out this article. It's a big one. It's a, you know, a headliner article in, in the Saturday New York Times, and the article goes viral. You know, it was just one of those moments where failure, I think, was just starting to become part of the conversation in a bigger way. And, you know, it was, a, it was a big article. And my face is prominently featured as like literally the face of this article. <laughs> there, were, there were months, Mo, where you could have Googled failure and my face would have been <laughs> one of your top search results, if not the top search result. And I mean, you know, for me as, as somebody who, you know, I think still, of course, I haven't, I haven't gotten rid of my ego. I, and, and, and I think at that time, my ego was even much stronger. It hurt. I was trying to craft this image of success. I wanted people to look at me and feel like that guy is successful. And now here I am. I'm like, my gosh, I don't even know if this thing's ever going to go away. If you Google Sunil Gupta years from now is one of the ser- first search results going to be this list of failures that he racked up you know, being reported by the New York Times. But what ended up happening really laid down the foundation for this book, because what I was able to do was I eventually just started to use that as an icebreaker to go have conversations with people. So I would literally send people the article and I would say, you know, clearly, as you can see from this article, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) Would you be willing to grab coffee with me? Would you be willing to chat with me? And I think people got such a kick out of that, that I had a much higher percentage of people who said yes. And at the time, I was raising money for my startup. It was going nowhere. I had been rejected by every investor that I had pitched. And I started to ask for advice. I started to say, hey, you know, how, what is it like? How do you get people to take a chance on you? I'm a first-time entrepreneur. I don't have a track record. But at the same time, I really believe in this business. And I want to I start changing some of these no's into yeses. What do I need to do? And that ended up laying the foundation for this book. Hmm. So 
So let, let's talk about this book, because I think, once again, I mean, fabulous title. But when I started to really, really research your content, it's actually really eye-opening that you're like me. Uh, neither of us will come across to the rest of the world as introverts, but you're an introvert like me. And it's surprising because we're on stage, we're talking publicly. You and I are recording our intimate conversation for the entire world to listen to it right now on slow-mo. And yet, as I started to look at everyone in my career, and I coached countless startups and I mentored countless senior leaders in my career and so on, the ones that were backable, the ones that I actually felt I wanted to support, felt, not in my head, but I felt it and I didn't know how, had those seven qualities really so visible and apparent to them. Let's start by defining the concept. What is backable? Which are the people that you call backable? Yeah. Well, you know, I think we all know that creativity and persuasion are two different things. But oftentimes in, in our day-to-day, they get combined into one. But the reality is that, you know, you, can, you could be, have a great product. You could have a great idea. You could be the ideal candidate for a job. And you could still be dismissed. And what I got interested in were, were backable people who tend to walk into a room, whether that be an interview, a pitch, an audition, and they tend to shine. And the key is that oftentimes, even when they're not necessarily the obvious choice, they don't have the obvious background, they don't have the obvious qualifications, we still feel compelled to want to take a chance on them. And so what what I got really interested in was what is this it quality that inspires us to do this? And, and can that it quality be learned? So what I started to do after this New York Times failure article came out, I, I started to broaden the net beyond just venture capital, but I started to talk to Oscar winning filmmakers, celebrity chefs, military leaders, people who are you know leaders within iconic companies that climbed to the roles that they were in and started to realize that, yeah, if you rewind the clock, and you go back to the early stages of their career, oftentimes they did not start out that way. They were not naturally backable people. They were not born backable, but there was a set of qualities that they started to adopt along the way, sometimes consciously, intentionally, sometimes just along the way, they just happened to embody these things. So my goal was how do we reverse engineer this so that any of us can learn how to become backable? Because look, the reality is that being backable is not just for celebrities and CEOs. You look at the people that I, that I work with mostly today, it's the factory worker who wants to step into a leadership role. It's the accountant who has a new idea for her clients at the office, but she needs to be heard. It's the physician who has a new idea on how we might be able to tackle some of what's ahead of us with, with COVID-19 and needs to get the administration behind her. There are so many, I think we can all use a little bit of that it quality oh, because yeah. we can't do it alone. Yeah, no, no, no I, actually, I actually even pushed it further as I started to read your words. You know, it's the idea of being backable applies to the girlfriend that really gets the full support of her boyfriend or, or, or girlfriend. You know, it's yeah. the, it applies to, to my wonderful daughter and I, how, how I, I blindly want to support her ideas. There, there is a character, you know, in all of us that actually gets people to want to cheer for us, to want us to be successful right? To want to bet on us. And I actually think, you know, while of course, Backable is written in a format that sort of fits within the modern world of work, if you want, 
I think it applies to almost everything. It's, you know, I used to have that fun conversation with my wonderful ex-wife where I basically said everything in life is business. When you really think about it, everything in life is negotiable. Everything in life is persuasion. Everything in life is winning partners and allies. And I think Backable captures that really nicely. You know, it's it, some of those I think our listeners will realize are actually things you have to do in your relationships, you know, in your just day-to-day life. I think so, Mo. You know, one of the one of the concepts we talk about in the book is is the IKEA effect. And the IKEA effect basically tells us that we place up to five times the amount of value on something that we help build than something that we simply buy. So there are a lot of people out there with poorly made futons and furniture that they're they're never going to get rid of because <laughs> yeah. because they made it themselves, right? So bringing that to personal relationships, I, I think I, we can talk about you know how that fits into the creative world and innovation world, but it also fits into the IKEA effect. Really fits into our personal relationships as well. You know, in 2016, I'm working in Silicon Valley. I'm at a firm called Kleiner Perkins venture capital firm. And I'm figuring out what my next move is and thinking about venture capital, being an investor, thinking about maybe starting a new company. And the presidential election happens. And I realized that like, I felt like I was living in a bubble. My hometown back in Michigan was one of the towns that flipped from blue to red that year and helped Donald Trump become president. And I thought to myself, how did this how did this happen? And what do I need to understand that I didn't understand? So I started spending a lot more time back in my home district. And eventually I decided I wanted to move back and run for office. Now I had to go tell this plan to my wife, right? <laughs> Hello. Yeah, exactly. My, we have a newborn daughter. We have one who's four years old. And I go to her and I say, look, I would love to move back to Michigan get really involved in, in what's happening in public policy out there on the ground, maybe even run for office. And she looks at me and she says, I, I hate that idea. <laughs> That's openness. Yeah. Like, I don't want to leave the Bay Area. We, like, we finally have figured out how to make ends meet out here. We're, we're, we're finally in a decent place. We've been here for nearly a decade. And I don't want to like, uproot our lives and move. And so over the next few months, she and I ended up having just this, this pull push Right, where I continued to try to convince her, she continued to say no. And eventually what I realized is like, I was trying to sell her a piece of furniture, right? I was trying to sell her a piece of, of furniture and instead of building something together. And so where we landed was a plan. And the plan was that we're going to move to Michigan and, if, and I'm going to probably eventually going to run. If I win my election, then obviously we're going to stay. But if I lose my election, then you get the choice as to where we move next. No questions asked. That's fully up to you. Her family lives on the East Coast. She grew up in the DC area. I thought maybe we end up moving to DC, but whatever it is. And, and so that didn't necessarily make her feel great about the idea of leaving San Francisco to move to Michigan, but at least she felt like she was building the piece of furniture with me. Right? At least she felt like she was part of the overall plan. So I think this, this IKEA effect Really, what it teaches us is that when we can bring people in, what we call in the book, flipping outsiders to insiders and make them part of the plan, make them feel like it's their plan as well, because it is part of their plan. If they can start to feel that level of ownership, you know, that's how I think organizations are made. I think that's how successful movements are built. It's how successful startups grow. And I think it's how relationships thrive. 
That's amazing. And it's so interesting, by the way, that you call it a piece of furniture together because isn't that what most relationships are all about, right? Even, you know, when you really think about it, your and my friendship, hopefully for years to come, isn't that a piece of furniture? Isn't yes. that something that we build together? And and most of the time people would not see it that way. They, you know, either expect it to just happen or they would, you know, sort of like say, okay, I'm responsible for this. I'm going to do this. And, you know, that's it. It's so interesting when you think about it. Let me let me take us through, if you don't mind, briefly, because I actually want everyone to read the book and, and look at the details, but I want to cover the whole seven steps. Sure. Yeah. I'd be happy to. I love, 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 love the first concept, okay, which is convince yourself first, right? Which seems so intuitive now that you read it, but surprisingly, it doesn't come across so easily when we don't think about it. You're saying before you go out and try to convince others, spend the time to try and convince yourself. And you started that from your low career. You, you called it the being in the shoes of the opposition or something like that. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that concept. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think when I started writing the book, I believed that I was going to find a certain communication style to backable people. They were going to have a certain way of using eye contact and hand gestures and pacing. But I did not find that to be the case at all. You certainly had some who, you know, were much more extroverted and gregarious and, and just, I think, just, you know, better sort of or more classic sort of Dale Carnegie-esque speakers. <laughs> but you definitely had many who were not, you know, introverted, quiet, shy, did not have the classic communication styles. One of my favorite examples is if you, if you look up the most popular TED Talk of all time right now, it's a guy named, wonderful guy named Sir Ken Robinson. Oh, yes. Who... It gives this amazing talk on education. And he has a hand in his pocket. He has a slouch. He sort of meanders on and off script. <laughs> it is the most popular TED Talk of all time, but it's a very un-TED-like presentation. Elon Musk, after he unveiled the future of SpaceX, Inc. Magazine wrote a headline. It said, Elon Musk fails public speaking 101. You know, if you go look at the, the 2007 iPhone launch, the original iPhone launch, we look back at that as, as one of the most groundbreaking product releases of all time, one of the most charismatic presentations of all time. But it's not really. I mean, if you go back and you look at it and watch it again now, you start realizing, I mean, it, it, is, it is Steve Jobs kind of wanders around stage. He uses, if you look at the transcript, he uses the word uh over 80 times oh. in that speech, mm -hmm. over 80 times. And so the point is that it's not, it's not charisma that makes a person convincing. It's conviction. Oh, I love this. Backable people take the time to convince themselves first, truly convince themselves first. And then they let that conviction shine through whatever style it is that feels most natural to them. So the moment that I always think about is, you know, you're, you're in a meeting or you're, you're with friends and the moment of inspiration hits you, an idea strikes you. And immediately, I think our temptation is to share that idea, right? And we do. So we blurt it out. And then we look around for everybody's reactions. And everybody kind of is like, huh, you know, nice. interesting. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Their energy level is nowhere near the energy that you feel inside. And when that happens, that can be very deflating. You know, one of the things we found is that if you look inside companies, most great ideas don't actually get killed 
inside the conference room. Most great ideas get killed inside hallways. They get killed around water coolers. They get killed through casual conversations because what ends up happening is that we share it, don't get the feedback we need. We put it in a drawer and we sort of walk away. It never bubbles up. And some of these are phenomenal ideas, right? Phenomenal. And so, you know, what backable people tend to do is they almost have this little moment of pause where when the idea of inspiration strikes them, they almost go through a very quick decision tree. They think to themselves, is this something that I have high conviction for at this moment? And if it is, then by all means, share it in that moment. There's no time like the present. But if it's not, if it's not, then what backward people tend to do is they, they resist that temptation to share it immediately and spend a little bit of time taking what I call in the book incubation time. You can almost think of it as a difference between a, a chocolate M&M and a peanut M&M. A chocolate M&M is, is low conviction. Somebody squeezes it and it cracks, right? So what you want to do is you want to take some time to put a peanut inside. <laughs> not necessarily to make it bulletproof. It's not going to be steel, but, but just to build enough conviction where if somebody starts to squeeze it a little bit, it's not going to crack immediately. So in the book, what we do is we dig in then to how do you actually spend time really building that conviction? You know, what I do is I offer a bunch of different techniques that people use. And yeah, you know, Mo, you alluded to one of them, which is steering into the objections of the idea. One of the ways we put a peanut inside the M&M is we take off our excited hat and we put on our critic hat and we actually steer into those objections ourselves. Literally, what I do is I write down on a piece of paper, what are the top three reasons this doesn't make sense? And then I try my best to answer those objections. Now, that doesn't mean you need to have perfect answers to these questions. And in fact, if it's a new idea, if you're really trying to create change, chances are you probably don't have perfect answers to this. But just the process of A, figuring out what you don't know, knowing what you don't know, and then B, having some semblance of thought behind each of those things gets you prepared for a room because what happens is you win credibility by being able to steer, by being willing to steer into the objections of your own idea. And the second thing is when you can steer into objections, what happens is that objection will stop nagging them as much because chances are if somebody has an objection to your idea and you're simply talking about why it's great, that objection is still nagging at them and you don't have their full attention. But if at the very least you can address the fact that I know what's nagging you and I want to have a discussion about that, they will tune in to at least a stronger part of your argument or your pitch. So hold on. I think we all want to continue this conversation. So we'll split this into a two-part episode. And so don't put your device down. Just jump into the next conversation where we will continue to talk about these seven steps, these seven qualifications that make someone backable. I'm enjoying this so much. So uh, I hope you are to uh, join us for the next episode. And while you're at it, you might as well just take a screenshot of this and share it on social media so that you tell people how beneficial and how wonderful the wisdom of this wonderful human being is. And yeah, rate the podcast five stars in the process, I think, uh, that's not a bad thing to ask you to do because it really helps me spread this wonderful wisdom of my guests to many others. Join us on part two with Sunil Gupta.